Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 33 of our little podcast. My name is David Noe, and I'm here in the Vomitorium with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Jeff Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'd say I'm doing just okay right now. I'm a little chilly. Um, I'm, I'm fighting a little something. It's that late April, fall, spring, second winter kind of thing going on. And uh, um, But I'm hanging in there. It can be a little discouraging, can't it? It can. It feels a little smarchy. It, very smarchy. We're out of March, but we're not into May, and there's April showers, promise of May flowers, but the uh, the horizon still seems a little bleak it's here bleak. in the Midwest. It feels like kind of the second or third catabasis. Is it? we got to crawl out. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to do that today. We're going to take the listener right back to Ithaca, the big reveal, the reunion of Odysseus and Telemachus, a lot of great things on tap. Yes. Big moments. Yep. But before we get there, we have our usual shout-out, and I believe you're taking care of that today. Yes, this is one of our appetizers. The shout-out here goes to Mr. Mark Muth. Mark. His name is, uh, last name spelled M-U-T-H. I think it's Muth. Wouldn't we have egg on our faces if it turns out to be Muth? Muth, right. We're going to say, let's go with Muth. We'll stick with Muth. Yep. All right. He is a Magister Latinos, a Latin teacher. He's a Profesor de Español, Spanish teacher. Wow. And a theology instructor emeritus. He got emeritated at the Archbishop Curley High School there in Baltimore, Maryland. Excellent. Well, thanks to Mark for listening to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. And thanks yeah. also for keeping alive this study of Latin. That's such a crucial a crucial service that you do to the rest of civilization, frankly. We're yeah. really glad to have you. Definitely. An impressive little resume, just those three lines. It's, I it's, think so. It's incredible. Yeah. So, Jeff, you have another of our appetizers this week, don't you? You have our quote, our opening quote. This is uh, from a fellow named M.J. Alden. Yes, from an article that he wrote back in the late 1980s called The Role of Telemachus in the Odyssey. So this, like we said, um, I would say the highlight of these three books we're covering today is that very important reunion. Absolutely. Yep. So uh, let me read this, this, uh, this quote. I think this will set us up nicely for a number of things we're talking about. So Alden writes, Odysseus departed before Telemachus was of an age to remember his father. Everyone except Telemachus uses recognition tokens to satisfy himself that Odysseus is who he says he is. Eurycleus sees the scar. Eumaeus and the cowherd see it later. Penelope asks many questions and sets many trials, culminating in the proof of the bed. Laertes is shown the scar and told the trees which he had given to Odysseus when he was a child. However, there can be no such tokens between Odysseus and Telemachus because Telemachus knows nothing of his father except what he has been told. That is why, after initial disbelief, he accepts it when he is told by the stranger in the swineherd's hut that he, the outsider who changes like a chameleon at the whim of Athene, is his father. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. So all of the different recognition tokens for the different characters, but of course, impossible in the case of Telemachus, he has never seen his father. Right. They have no history, no background. Right. And and that's I, I had never really thought of it that way, but this Nor is a very I. this is a very practical way of looking at, at yes. the scene. Um I mean I've always taken that that scene to be that uh, there's no recognition token because there's some kind of mystical bond between father and son. Telemachus doesn't need a token because inherently this um you know he is he is part of his father and the story is so much about how much like his father will Telemachus become? 
Well, apparently they have some physical similarity. This is a point that's brought out at several different points in the uh, several different junctures yes. in the epic. I think um, Helen and Menelaus, book four, when Telemachus shows up there, they recognize there's something about him that looks like his father. Yeah. They mistake him for his father uh, momentarily. And so there's that element but there can't be any shared history, which is at the same time both sad and compelling. Right, exactly right. Yeah, and um, just to remind the listeners that, that trip that Telemachus takes, and we actually see him come home from that trip in these books. Um, part of the reason Athena sets him out on that is so he can gain this confidence, so he can get, he can be assured that he is indeed Odysseus' father. And it's when Menelaus and Pelas say, wow, you look just like him, that he starts to feel that. When he starts to have some success with his own exploits. Exactly. He's living into the shoes, the sandals of his father. That's right. Showing he has the kind of arete that a son of Odysseus would possess. Yep. Another point that Alden brings up is that there are a number of recognition scenes uh, leavened into the final books of the Odyssey. Yeah, I think you could say the, the whole second half of the Odyssey is structured around those. So we see in these books we're covering today, we see two key ones. We see one with Telemachus and then also um, one of my favorites with his old dog. Argos. Argos, yeah. You don't want to give that away. No, 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 no. Right. Not, not too quickly. No. So Aristotle, when he's talking about tragedy, just to bring in our favorite biologist, he says that tragedy revolves around these two plot devices of recognition and reversal. Yes. And we have seen a lot of reversal thus far, haven't we? Yeah, it strikes me that um, you were talking about Aristotle's observation that uh, you know, in his famous example of Oedipus the king... It's the recognition that comes before the reversal. Okay. And so when Oedipus, you know, recognizes finally kind of who he is and what he's done, that's the moment where the whole plot turns. He gets new knowledge on his identity, and that has far-reaching implications for his circumstance. Exactly right. Now, I guess suppose that, um, you know, there's a number of reversals that have taken place already in the Odyssey. Yeah, maybe I'll retreat from that a little bit okay. and say they're more in, they're more in line with changes. Changes, okay. Not necessarily a reversal. So Telemachus becomes more assertive yeah. from being a passive kind of uh, captive in his own home. Yep. Odysseus is released from the island of Calypso. He's set free to wander the the Mediterranean. These kinds of changes aren't really reversals, but these recognition scenes, like you're saying, the, the last quarter of the epic, yeah. they do lead to a kind of reversal in um, status. Instead, Yeah, certainly. And it also sets us, sets us up for the the major reversal, the retaking of the house right. at the end, right? So, yeah, no, I think that that's astute. You know, we, we've talked in earlier episodes about how, compared to the Iliad, sometimes the Odyssey is described as a comedy, mm-hmm. um, but that recognition reversal, Aristotelian notion, is you know, squarely Aristotle's definition of tragedy as well. Right. Yeah. So as we get into this, mm-hmm. we're going to look today at books 15 through 17 in particular. Yeah. And these feature the return of Telemachus and the tale of Eumaeus. That's in book 15. Uh, book 16, what kinds of things do we have? Um, that's the, I would say that's the highlight. That's, okay. the, that's the reunion between father and son, Odysseus and Telemachus. And then... Um, 17 is the return to the palace yes. in disguise. Right. And the beginnings of the, the mechanisms by which he's going to retake his throne, you might say. Exactly right. Now, I got to say that the reunion, I think, is great. I love learning Eumaeus' backstory. But I got to admit, 15 through 17, for me, I, I always feel this is kind of the trough. Snoozy? It's, I wouldn't say snoozy, but there's, I don't know. I think this is, if I had to say, is there, if there's any point in the epic where I think Homer needed an editor, this is the place. Really? Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I mean, we'll get into it as we go along, but it's, there's, I mean, there's so much Zinnia. I mean, my goodness. 
how much zinnia can you take? I mean, the meat, the wine, the gifts, the embroidery. I can take a lot. You can take a lot? Uh, I really can. Right. I'm, where's he putting all Is this your stuff? life so full of hospitality and embroidery and wine and meat that reading a few books of it uh, back to back I'm, leaves you feeling kind of numb? I'm not connecting this to my life at all. Well, my, that's the problem. <laughs> That's, that's why you can't enjoy the epic properly. Right. So you, you came away from this maybe wanting even a little bit more. Absolutely. Another meal. Let's have another one. Another cloak. So I just know there's that. I think this is maybe maybe a positive way to look at it. This is kind of the calm before the storm. All right. Because the storms are coming. Yes. Um, but I thought there was there that, was places, that, particularly in book 15, where I was like, all right, come on, come move on. It, move it on. Move it on. Yeah. Well, there's a common, it seems to me, a common... Um, device for writing a story like this, where you have to alternate between intense action mm-hmm. and more uh, pacific and placid scenes. Yeah, it can't be it can't be action fight scenes all the time. No, right? you have to have moments of lull, of uh, reflection, of just gentle, simple narrative. Yeah. But for you, at least in book 15, especially, it's getting a little dull. Well, I think it was actually our last, our last episode, our last They're artist. starting to all run together well. a little bit. <laughs> The last Odyssey episode, we were talking about how, um, as we get into this, the second half, there's lots of these examples of kind of, again, how Zania ought to be done. Mm-hmm. We saw it with the Phaeacians, we saw it with Circe, um, and then I just we see it with Menelaus again. Okay. We see it um, in so, how Telemachus responds to Eumaeus. It's like, we get it. So just to play Homer's advocate here a little bit. Please. You have the sense that... that um, People have learned the lessons of Zania so thoroughly. There's there's general hospitality and kindness and warmth pervading human society that we, we really don't need to be taught anymore. I, again, I'm not treating this on this kind of this expansive <laughs> worldwide level. I'm, I'm, it doesn't I'm, have a didactic element at all. I, I felt it. It was a little insulting as a as a audience. It's like okay, all right, we we, we get it, Homer. We get mm. it, Homer. We get this this um, this code of hospitality as a moral center. Of the of the epic, I found it a little patronizing. All right, yeah. I, I can buy into all right, that. All right, okay. I know you don't want to personalize it, but I was thinking about stopping by your house <laughs> for uh, you know just a, a brief two three weeks stay. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and see how it goes. I, I got maybe some Ritz crackers for you, and some uh, and a jug of water, and some huggable portions. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but Jeff, I I have to digress for just a moment, please. I missed. A tremendous opportunity a few episodes back. That doesn't sound like you. I know, and I just can't resist. Okay. When uh, Odysseus and his men were sneaking out of the cave of the Cyclops. Yeah. Remember, it's all fun and games till someone gets poked in the eye. Of course, how could I forget? Someone gets an eye poked out. So they're they're going out on these sheep transports. Yes. Right? These uh, self-driving kind of vehicles. <laughs> okay. Right? And uh, what, what sort of service were they using? What? I have no idea. They were using Uber. As they're clinging to the underside of the... Sh- it's Uber, Uber right? E-W-E-Burr. Yeah, they, got a, they have an app for that. <laughs> like the app you use when you need to return your library books. Yeah, I gotcha. I, li- I like it. Renuber. Like right, so as soon as that stone got rolled back, he whipped out the, the cell phone. Correct. Punched the app, and here comes the, uh, the transportation yes. use. Gotcha. When you want to summon a wildebeest. Yes. Gnuber. Gnuber, right. And I believe how this all started between us is... Yeah, when you find when you want to find the choice, the choice is potato. Yes, you tuber, tuber, right, <laughs> right. Automatic soup appears. Stuber, Stu- you know we have to stop. Okay, because this could be the whole episode. Okay. <laughs> hey, I think we got to get cleaning into- out your chimney. <laughs> oh no, fluber, fluber. <laughs>
Oh, man. If you want to cue up some very specific classic rock, right. The Hoover. The Hoover. <laughs> so you were going to stop just a minute ago, and I now know. you're going on. I know. You got me going. You got me going. I, th- I think we got to get into the text, though. All right. All right. Okay, so book 15. It starts with, um, we're back to Telemachus. So remember, Telemachus has been on this trip um, to Pelos to visit Nestor, and now he's in Sparta uh, with Menelaus and Helen. And he's enjoying the Xenia. He's enjoying all the hospitality there. And um, Athena tells him, hey, get up. Time to go. Yes, very similar to the uh, visit of Hermes, or I should say Mercury, to uh, Aeneas in Book 4. Yes, exactly. Aeneas. Get up. You have some things to do. Stop uh, lollygagging around here in Carthage. Yeah, yeah. One thing that jumped out at me that I... I don't know if I ever really noticed this before, but the way she urges Telemachus to get going, she says, listen, um, you got family members that are urging your mom to marry. And not just marry, you know, move things along, but to marry, not in Tinnuous. You know, who, when I teach this, I always say, who, you know, who's the lead suitor? It's, and and the lead villain. The lead villain right? in Tinnuous. But she says, Eurymachus. Oh. And uh, I think it's also mentioned another time. And did you notice that at all? No. Okay. But, Went you know, completely over my head. But, but I, you know, I'd wonder is, is, again, is this Athena, like Odysseus, just lying a little bit? Because this would be adequate to provoke Telemachus? I, well, I think it's maybe it's not the Eurymachus part, but she's saying, you know, your uncles mm. are, are moving. So now your family members are getting on board with the suitors. It's time to move. They've given up, so you can't wait any longer. And who knows if this is true? If any of this is true, if this is just another trick to kind of get Telemachus uh, to, uh, to stop hitting the snooze bar in, uh, in Menelaus's palace, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know. It's a small detail, but it jumped out at me. Is it, why wouldn't she mention Antinous? Because, again, when he shows up later, it all, the text seems to suggest that he's the guy that kind of uh, all the suitors kind of follow his lead. Yes. Yeah. Well, the depth of the artistry and the complexity, I don't think it's really possible to... Uh, or at least it's very difficult to overestimate yeah, yeah. the depth of Homer's artistry. Complaints Indeed. about Xenia aside. <laughs> and speaking of which, All right. speaking of which, I mean, this is where it, it really it really hits. Uh, so um, Telemachus says, okay, you know, he wants to he wants to go. And Pisistratus, uh, Nestor's son, who's along with him, uh, tells him, hey, wait, 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 wait. You know, Xenia demands this and that. You know, mm-hmm. We've got to accept some gifts. We've got to give some thanks. We've got to pour some libations. Um, and it's kind of for me, it kind of, it kind of slows everything down. Mm-hmm. And again, maybe Homer's just saying again, no, there's a, a religiously correct way of going about all of this. Mm-hmm. You can't just run out on your on your host. So the poet is very religious, even yes. if even if not all of the characters are. Yeah, we talked last time about Odysseus not being uh, a few times ago not being especially religious because he doesn't call upon the gods until he really needs them. Yeah, the rest of the time it's just self reliance. Right. But Nestor is a very religious person. It is. Yeah. And you know, and now just as we're talking about it, um, I think another thing that really interesting that ha- thing that happens is in these books as we get towards the end, there's this piling up of omens. There's bird omens. Um, book seventeen ends as we'll see with Telemachus sneezing, and so there's this. The gods are kind of getting more involved, but in this indirect kind of way. Yes. Yeah, so the sneezing would be Achuber. Oh man. <laughs> This is not going to end. <laughs> it's not going to end, man. Yeah. Uh, an interesting note about Pisistratus. Yes. Uh, some scholars in antiquity believed that Pisistratus' role in the epic was enhanced in the 6th century under the Pisistratids, you oh, know, the yes. current, right. current tyrants of Athens, long about 520 or so, Pisistratus and his sons. Cicero tells us that it was during his reign that the books of Homer were put into their more or less final form. Ah. And so there was some suggestion that a clever poet edited Homer a little bit to enhance 
the position of Pisistratus in the epic. That's to make, really interesting. Yeah, make him look more impressive. It's a shout out. It is. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, yeah, it's a, I find it a very persuasive suggestion. Yeah. Beyond the reach of proof, probably. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. I mean, if it is, I think it's fairly, it's fairly seamless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One kind of funny thing I, I found in I'll, my... I'll decide if it's funny. Okay, okay, right. One thing I found okay. uh, funny in these in these books was uh, Menelaus says, yeah, here's some gifts, but he, you know, if you have time, let's go on this little Zania tour. He kind of <laughs> says, let's go around. He says, you know, everybody's given gifts these days. Okay. Right? So, and he's, he's probably thinking, hey, this is Odysseus' son. That's going to be another hook. Uh, we can go from a ho- town to town, house Collect to house. Collect gifts. Collect gifts. Do they have like a little punch card? <laughs> You go to all the places. You get a, a T-shirt, like the Bourbon tour. Yeah, if you, you hit them all, you get a you get a free T-shirt. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. But I, you know, I'm trying to imagine what they hauling wagons. Where's the stuff going? Again, maybe these questions that you don't ask. But I thought that was mentally as hey. Let's go out. Let's let's do a weekend tour of Argus and let's, uh, let's see what we can. Let's get some free stuff. See what we can get. Right. Yeah. Right. Swag bags. Like if you go to a conference, you, you've been to many of these classics conferences. Yes. Cam Wuss. Yeah. Right. The Classical Association of the Middle West and South. Yes. We uh, together have been to many of those. We have. We went on our little Zinnia tours and picked up various, um, shall I say, flotsam and jetsam. Yes. Pens, jump drives. Great stuff at the Hackett table. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little rinky dink. Okay, as my dad would say. Yeah, yeah, but Telemachus declines. Not interested. Not interested. Again, maybe he's saying, okay, I've uh, I've fulfilled my obligation as a guest, and going on a little Zania tour that's beyond the pale. And Athena's prodding him, right? That had yeah. to stick in his mind. I really need to get home because this is the crucial moment. Mom is going to be left to the uh, the whims of Eurymachus and company. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can I read a little bit from Lombardo's translation? I'd love to hear it. I read, and I, I put this in, not not because this is a, a central passage, but... In terms of plot, a plot development. But I just found this kind of uh, illustrates what I mean by kind of the extreme Zinnia here. So Lombardo translates, When they came to where the treasure was stored, the son of Atreus, that would be Menelaus, took a two-handled cup and had his son Megapenthes bring a mixing bowl of solid silver. But Helen went to the chest that held her robes, the richly embroidered robes she herself had made, and this beautiful woman, Helen of Argos, lifted out the robe that had the finest embroideries, an ample robe that shone like starlight beneath all the rest. Oh, it's beautiful. I don't need to know that much about this robe. Why don't you like that? What, is this like a bathrobe? You have some kind of a minimalist approach to literature, right? Right. Uh, less is more. I, yeah. I, you probably don't I like don't, Charles, Charles Dickens, right? I was, I've never been a Dickens fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that Gary Schmidt came into our vomitorium yeah. here and told us why we ought to. Hey, yo, I, I kept it. I kept it. You kept wraps. it to yourself. Did, yes, but. You don't like these long, elaborate descriptions? I know. Telemachus is going to do kind of lounge in this robe. You know, the the uh, name Megapenthes means a big sorrow. Right? Yeah. A big sadness. Right, so. And <laughs> who would name your child that? But I like these details. Tell me about the robe. You you want it, you didn't get enough about the robe? It's, right. It's, it's shown like starlight beneath all the rest. It's beautiful. All right. And again, you know, where's he going to keep? I'm thinking Telemachus is saying, where am I going to put all this stuff? I brought, mm. I brought one suitcase. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. And then it's followed up with there's more meat and more wine and libations. It's a... Um, all book 15 here, right? All book 15. As yep. Just to keep keep track of things. Because right. I know the, the listener is following along carefully in their text. Yes. And so Telemachus, a lot of Zania here, but he's got to get back to Ithaca. Right, right. Because now, now things are starting to, to get to get serious, right? And it's right at this moment um, that we see this first omen. Um, this eagle flies in front of him and veers to the right. And of course, it is the witch-like Helen that interprets this for us. Yes. And what does she say? Well, I have here the Rue translation. 
the prose translation, just as this eagle came down from his native mountains and pounced on our home-fed goose, so shall Odysseus, after many hardships and many wanderings, reach his home and have his revenge, or he is already there and planning trouble for the whole pack of suitors. So she gets that just from a, a bird and a goose. Incredible. An eagle and a goose, yeah. Yeah, they're both birds. <laughs> <laughs> I've looked at birds in the sky. I've tried to figure stuff out. Yeah. I never would have guessed that that's the kind of information that uh, the eagle with the goose in its talons, it, it's so that's what it's carrying. It's so specific. Then, and then later on, we'll see Penelope, too. She interprets a, a seemingly innocuous event with such clarity. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. Should we comment for a moment on the ancient view of bird flight? Uh, it's important that the, the eagle veers to the right. And so the right-hand side is, you find this in, in many cultures, considered lucky and fortunate, yeah. and the left-hand side is, is unlucky. You got something you want to add to that? Yeah, I would like to. Please. The birds fly between the gods and men. Okay. The gods are up there, we're down here. They kind of mediate between us. The flight of birds is also erratic. You can't uh, predict it. Therefore, it's subject to lots of interpretation. Yeah. This is big amongst the, the Romans in particular. Exactly. Although... They, didn't, they watched a lot of chickens, right? Chickens don't fly. I mean, are chickens the... The link? chicken thing seemed to be opposite. They watched uh, vultures and eagles. I don't okay. mean opposite, but it was the behavior of the chickens on the ground. You're right. They don't generally fly. Okay. So um, as Book 15 draws to a close, Telemachus gets back to his ship. And here's another episode that I, I find strange and maybe a little irritating. You know, a strange and irritating episode. It is a strange and irritating episode. You know how in sitcoms when they've kind of they're past their cell date and they often try to invigorate things by adding a new kid. Yeah, a new character, Poochie on The Simpsons. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, That's what I think happens here. Hmm. Because suddenly this guy Theoclymenus, this this prophet, shows up uh, just out of the blue. He's on the run because of of a murder that he committed, and Telemachus says, "Hey, yeah." Join my join uh, join my ship. Uh, come on aboard, you murderer. It just seems a little strange. And then he becomes this comes on no questions asked. No questions asked. And then he's this prophet who um, a couple of times he's there when an omen takes place, and he's there ready to interpret. It just seemed a little too convenient. Too convenient. A little lazy, right? You're, you're really quite critical of Homer this week. I, like I like I said, this is the trough for hmm. me, right? But it also strikes me too is that um, when it comes to omens. Um, it seems like women are much more in tune with these things, and they can do it, right? Helen knows what the bird sign means. Penelope knows what the sneeze means. But maybe, you know, uh, Telemachus doesn't get it. So maybe that's he has to have somebody trained in that. He's got to have this prophet, Theoclymenus, to come along. So uh, in case there's no women around, how do you interpret an omen? I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I'm trying to explain, feel better about why this guy shows up. And you wouldn't be prepared to accept the idea that it's just historical? Historical? What do you mean? Like, this is a real dude? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, I don't want to make too much of it, but I find kind of his presence strange. It comes out of the blue. It's, it's, never, it's never explained. And then Telemachus is, I mean, this is part of his extreme Zania. He says, yeah, wanted murderers, no problem. Come They're welcome on board. We'll grab an oar. It isn't meant to look, uh, to make Telemachus look like he's, you know, gathering a ragtag band. Uh, he's taking people on in the same way Odysseus has that adventurous, bold spirit. Possibly he's being characterized as a desperate individual. If he would take on board even a known murderer to serve as your priest. Possibly. I guess you could say that he becomes an arrow. This guy becomes an arrow in Telemachus's quiver. Mm-hmm. But he certainly doesn't test him in the way that his father would. 
So I don't know, maybe he's, he's kind of, again, it's one of these scenes where he's like his father, but he hasn't kind of learned the ways of his father mm-hmm. yet. All right. Okay. I'm feeling a little bit better All right. about it. Yeah. Well, I'm mostly concerned about your feelings. So. <laughs> As always. Right. Back on Ithaca, Odysseus yeah. wants to go up to the city and palace. He yeah. wants to beg. Yes. Right. Act like a beggar. But uh, Eumaeus gives him some other advice. He says, yeah, he says, you got to be nuts. Right. It's, it's horrible up there. You know, um, they're not going to treat you well. Your life is going to be in danger. And so he says, um, you know, stick around here. And he changes tactics and by kind of asking uh, Odysseus more about his background. And of course, Odysseus is happy to, to tell his own to story. To talk. Exactly. Right? So he gets Odysseus to delay from his first stratagem. Yes. Which is just kind of to burst right into the palace. Well, I mean, I think he wanted, I don't think that so much. I think he wanted to do, he wanted to do the, some recon. Mm-hmm. And we end up seeing him do this. But I think Eumaeus, again, it's, it's a scene where we see his, he's thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Right, he he cares for this this beggar, and um, thinking of him as just this this aged beggar, he said these they're going to eat you alive. Mm-hmm. Right, they're not going to show you any respect. No, and so it it shows us. I think the scene is there really to show us kind of the depth of Eumaeus's character. Right, yeah. and then we have a bombshell of sorts, don't we? Yeah, I don't know if if it's really a bombshell, but we learn Odysseus has. I a, think that's what you called it in the script. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that struck me that. Script. If, if I ever, if I ever learned the yeah, script, <laughs> if I ever learned this, I'd completely forgotten about it. But Odysseus has a sister, Kitimene. Uh-huh. Uh, Kitimene. Yeah, and she's she's married off to Eurylochus, who's one of the the guys on Odysseus's ships, um, part of his crew. Um, the guy that led the other crewmen to eat Helios's cattle. Yeah, he's awful. He's the brother-in-law. He's the brother-in-law. Right. That's never mentioned while it's happening, but um, I guess you know if you were a you know, a Greek of this time hearing the story, you would have known, oh yeah, there's a family connection. And if you were hearing it for the first time, this would be the moment of revelation or epiphany. Yeah. Whatever kind of dispute there might have been between Odysseus and Eurylochus, it may be traced back to this family connection. Very good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I thought that was that was really interesting. Um, this this family member that I don't remember learning about, reading about uh, at all. And as as from my you know ten minutes of research I did on it, there's not much. There's not much backstory to Kitimine. We Kitimine. don't know, know much mm-hmm. about her, right? But we have quite a, another large reveal that's coming after the break, don't we? We do. About the character of Eumaeus. That's right. Akin to the quest for cold fusion, the search for the perfect cup of coffee seems almost never ending. It now has ended. Ad nausea, listen up. Mark Helweg and his Portland-based crew at Racial Coffee have done it. Why throw your hard-earned cash at the overpriced downtown coffee barn when the sleek machines, the Ratio 6 and its big brother, the 8, can deliver this experience in your own kitchen? Indeed. I love my 6. Every morning I hit the button, watch as the effervescence of the bloom stage consigns all that nasty CO2 to oblivion, setting up a 200-degree shower of water through some odd Astro grounds, coming to rest in a mirror-sheened stainless steel carafe that I'm fairly sure could safely contain any supervillain in the Marvel comic universe. Even Thanos? Especially Thanos. Okay. Yeah. And the whole thing is like a mesmerizing chemistry demonstration. Which you like. I do like you, it. You like to be mesmerized by your chemo demos. I do. I was never good at chemistry in school, but... I, you like to watch I from like, a safe distance. Exactly right. Okay, but here's the best part, listeners. Right now, you can go to RacialCoffee.com right now and get a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. Enter special code ANCO for 15% off. That's ANCO at ratio, R-A-T-I-O, ratiocoffee.com. Who knew? It's true. You can bring the brew home to you. And when can they do this? Right now. Right now. Today's episode is also sponsored by Hackett Publishing. Now, Dave, I know you've been in that situation where all you want to do 
is sit on the back porch under your favorite tree and thumb through some Lucretius, but all you can find is a musty tome with a bland brown cover and a sludgy translation stuffed with wills these thousand wherefores. All the time! But Hackett has changed all of that. Listeners, with a click of a button, you can be on your way to discovering Hackett's deep well of attractive, affordable, accessible translations from the entire sweep of the Greco-Roman era. Yeah, great stuff for the academic as well as the casual reader. New books coming out all the time. For example, Hackett just released Len Krizak's new translation of Virgil's Aeneid, an epic we will surely cover at some time on this on this program. Absolutely. I've already gotten some requests for the Aeneid, so we got to go there, and we'll be guided by Len's new translation, no doubt. Yep. And we should mention that their publications are not just classical translations. They offer a wide variety of commentaries, works on religion, political theory, uh, early modern and medieval philosophy, they have it all, and even an AP Latin test prep book. Now, it sounds great, but why else should our listeners care? Well, ad nauseanators, right now you can save 20% on any order and receive free shipping. Did I mention the free shipping? I think you did. Did I mention the 20%? Also, you did, yes. Okay, they can go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, we trust you can spell publishing. Find the texts you want and enter the code AN2021 in the box, which asks for the coupon code AN2021. Don't wait. This week's episode is also brought to you by Odd Ostra Coffee, the coffee that takes you to the stars without needing to do all that perospera stuff. That's right. And Dave, now over the past week, I've been inspired both, both by the Odd Ostra Poetry Series, which features poems by Stevens, Wordsworth, Rilke, and others right there on the container, and also by your recent coffee-themed poem. You don't say. No. You you mean my little limerick yeah. about the guy that once brew and froth and so forth? Exactly right. It was something like, there once was a guy who drank coffee, something frothy. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much it. It was catchy. Right. And this week, uh, just to kind of up the ante, okay. I've, I've got a haiku. All right. Let's hear it. All right. Beans so dark, strong brew, tenebris blend waft awake, another cup? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's bagworthy. Well, maybe not. Uh, the listeners probably don't know that we write this stuff up and then don't let the other person see it to see if we can try to provoke a laugh or some major guffaw. But let's turn to the good news for our listeners. A-N friends. Yes. Go to Odd Ostra Roasters, A-D-A-S-T-R-A roasters.com. Check out some of their delicious, high-quality offerings. You get a special 10% off by entering code ANAA, not to be confused with the automobile insurance, but ANAA, and you can also sign up for their monthly subscription. Yes, Brew Bear. So, Jeff, as we get back into the story here, in book 15, we have Eumaeus's backstory, don't we? Yeah. We want to know his origins. Where did he come from? And Homer indulges us in this. That's right. It's re- it's really interesting. We learn that Eumaeus is, um, he hasn't always been a swineherd. Um, he is, a, in many ways, an exiled prince um, in, in a way that kind of connects him to Telemachus. He was born from a royal household, he says, on, on the island of Syra, or Syros, as it's sometimes called. Kind of long story short, there was a, a Phoenician woman in his household who um, makes a deal with some other Phoenicians that have come to the land to escape the, the household. And they take Eumaeus along as a as a hostage, or uh, they kidnap him to to, to sell him. Hmm. And he winds up being sold to um, Eulartes on uh, when that boat arrives in Ithaca. So Laertes, of course, is Odysseus's father. Yes. So he's been around a very long time. Yeah, and loyal to this household, but a slave in this household, but with royal background himself. I just so find, an exiled prince. Yeah. 
uh, now confined to tending hogs. Yep. But he finds dignity and and uh, honor in that profession. It seems to be. He does. Right. I mean, in our last Odyssey episode, he's you know he takes care of things. He's a builder. He um, he organizes his pens. He's a craftsman in the way that Odysseus is. So I think one of the things that keeps happening as we learn more about Emmaus, we see more and more how he's both he's like Odysseus and Telemachus. Mm-hmm. We can see that. Uh, why there'd be kind of a natural bond between these men. And he's well prepared to be uh, the third wheel, right, in their efforts to take back the palace. That's right. So he's a champion. He's highly sympathetic to them. I think this is just more of uh, Homer's incredible artistry, the way he fleshes out these characters a little bit at a time. Yeah. Should we get into book 16 then? Yeah. So uh, right before book 16, uh, Telemachus returns. Yes. Right. Of course. We can't, we can't skip that. That's right at the end of book 15, is it not? Yep. Yeah, and so we learn that uh, Telemachus is careful. He's been warned not to go straight to the palace because the suitors are waiting to ambush him there. And so he sends the ship back back to the palace, back to the port. Uh, he gets off early and walks towards Eumaeus' hut. And he sees an omen, does he not? Another omen, right, uh, and more birds. Yes, uh, a hawk killing a dove on the right. Yeah. But as we just covered, he's not really skilled in bird flight, augury. Yeah. So he has to rely upon Theoclymenus, who's on board. And Theoclymenus gives a positive interpretation. Two enthusiastic thumbs up. Okay. Yes. The crew and the ship head for the palace. Telemachus goes on foot. The hawk and the dove, things are going to work out. Things are going to work out, right? And now we come into book 16. Yeah. So Telemachus comes to Eumaeus' hut, and I I, I love this. I love this scene um, because it's so clear that this is a second home for Telemachus. The dogs don't bark at him. They know him. We have Homer addressing Eumaeus as my Eumaeus. I, I like Lombardo's translation when Telemachus speaks to Eumaeus, he calls him Papa. Right. And so there's clearly this... Surrogate father. Surrogate father, right. And so he's he's very comfortable there. Um, do you yeah. have some Greek to read for us? I do. There? I want to read the first few lines of book 16. Please here. do. So, Tauden klesie adeseos kaidios huforbos, en tunan taristan am eoi keyamanopur, ek pemsan tenomeyasam agromenoisisu esi. That last part there, the suesi. Yeah, those are the pigs. Sui. Yeah, that's right. right. Those are the pigs right there. That's right. Wow, we're really we're really impressed with those pigs, aren't we? Yeah, those are the ones right there. Those are the very pigs. No mistaking. <laughs> now, what do those lines mean? Yeah. So uh, Lombardo translates. Meanwhile, in the hut, Odysseus and the noble swineherd had kindled a fire and were making breakfast in the early light. They had already sent the herdsmen out with the droves of swine. With the droves of swine. Those are the pigs right those, there. Those very same pigs. Yes, yes. exactly. That's right. So get, brace yourself. Get ready for some more Zania. Okay. Oh, man. It's, it's a coming. Full on. Full on. Right. So uh, Telemachus comes in. And, of course, Odysseus, again, he's still the, he's the beggar. He stands up. But Telemachus says, no, stranger, keep your seat. I'll do the standing around here. And offers him all kinds of gifts and, and, and such. So, again, it's Telemachus kind of, he gets the rules of Xenia. He's, he's moral. He's upstanding. Eumaeus is the king of Xenia as well. We've seen this before. Mm-hmm. And now as Telemachus really comes into his own, more yep. and more as the epic develops, we see he has some criticisms of the way things are going on in the hut, or at least some concerns. Right. He's very upset with what's been happening with the with the suitors. Let me read from Lombardo's translation. Well, I should say Telemachus complains about what's happening in the house, and Odysseus responds. In in the house, you mean in Eumaeus' house or back in the palace? He's complaining about what's happening in the big house, okay. the palace, um, and then Odysseus uh, responds to this. And he says, my friend, surely it is right for me to speak up. It breaks my heart to hear you talk about the suitors acting like this in your house and going against the will of a man as great as you. It is against your will, isn't it? What happened? Do the people up and down the land all hate you? Has a god turned them against you? Or do you blame your brothers, whom a man has to rely upon in a fight, 
especially if a big fight comes up. I wish I were as vigorous as I am angry, or were a son of flawless Odysseus, or Odysseus himself, wink, wink. <laughs> then I would put my neck on the chopping block if I did not give them hell when I came into the halls of Odysseus, son of Laertes. He right. is such a consummate liar, isn't he? <laughs> yes, right. It's brilliant. He points out uh, his ignorance of whether or not uh, Telemachus has any siblings, and of course... He knows he doesn't, right? right? All of these things. And finally says, if I were the son of flawless Odysseus, or even if I were Odysseus himself. Right. It's like he's bursting to reveal himself, but he's also reveling in the storytelling at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And he's testing Telemachus. Yes. Yeah. Why is it that things are like this? It is against your will, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Have you been playing along, son? Right. right. Have yeah. you been cursed by the gods? Has Good a point. god turned them against you? All of these elements. And it reveals the utter isolation of Telemachus. Yeah. All he has really is Athena. Yeah. Yeah. Even even his mom is, has been kind of wishy-washy. And she's and, weakening after years and years of right. waiting. Exactly right. So Eumaeus, um, he gets a mission from um, Telemachus, says, listen, uh, you know, I, I'm not ready to go to the palace yet, but go tell my mother that I'm home. So Eumaeus leaves, and now it's just father and son alone. Exit Eumaeus, right? Yes. Another great plot device. We want to get him off the stage. Yes. So the two can be together for the happy reunion. Right. And here's where we get this wonderful recognition scene. So it's at this moment, Athena removes the disguise that she has put over Odysseus, and Telemachus starts to slowly kind of see kind of who this is. It reminds me, that scene reminds me of, um, although it's a much darker scene, is uh, from the Bacchae where Agave has the head of her son on, oh, on yeah. the pike. I'd say that's a little darker. Yeah, it's much darker. But she, the way that she kind of slowly loses, the, loses the, kind of the illusion and she realizes what she's done. Here Telemachus notices something's different and then it kind of comes around into a full recognition. And the kind of disguise that Athena removes from Odysseus is his disguise of senescence, right? That yes. he's a very old man. Right. But how does that matter? Because... Telemachus has never seen his father except when he was an infant. Right. And certainly doesn't remember his appearance. Right. Well, I think, I mean, I've always read this as that he instinctually recognizes something of himself. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's like looking into a mirror of sorts, you're saying? Something like that. So, um, again, Lombardo. No no marks. I'm going to have to interrupt again. Yeah, yeah. No marks, no tokens. No tokens. He just knows at a kind of gut level. Right. This is my father. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that's that's what makes this so kind of touching and, and beautiful. Yeah, please read the Lombardo. Yeah, so Telemachus says, you look different, stranger, than you did before, and your clothes are different, and your complexion. You must be a god, one of the immortals who hold high heaven. Be gracious to us so we can offer you acceptable sacrifice and finally wrought gold and spare us, please. Hmm. So he kind of has this religious awe in front of what's just happened. Um, I think it must be exactly what a man would feel when he has seen his father after 20 years. Yeah. A man, you know, that he has thought about endlessly but has no likeness of, no picture, no memories, has been told about by his mother, his grandmother, his grandfather, and everyone else he knows. Right. That's probably exactly how he would respond. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really, it's really quite a moment. You know, it makes, makes me think back to those first books where Telemachus says something like, well, everybody tells me he's my father, but I have no idea. He's so lost. Mm. And this is where the moment where this kind of all kind of comes together. And it's right here in book 16, listener, if you want to, you know, read it for yourself. Right. And it's, it's, it's emotional. They embrace. There's copious weeping. Lots and lots of weeping. There's some epic simile as well. Yeah. Uh, do you have it in front of you? I do. D- d- yeah. Would you read that? Mm-hmm. 
So this little bit here is taken from the Rue translation again. Odysseus replies, I am no god, said the patient good Odysseus. Why do you take me for an immortal? But I am your father, on whose account you have endured so much sorrow and trouble and suffered persecution at men's hands. So Telemachus originally or initially disbelieves and he faults the gods with cruelty. Now you're just being cruel to me again. You're just trying to uh, make me suffer more. Mm-hmm. Odysseus reassures him and piously credits Athena with a change. No, it's, it's an easy thing for Athena to have made me look like that. This is the real deal. As for these changes in me, Odysseus says, they are the work of the warrior goddess Athena who can do anything and make me look as she wishes, at one moment like a beggar and at the next like a young man finely dressed. It is easy for the gods in heaven to glorify or debase a man. And now a passionate longing for tears arose in them both. This is so beautiful because Homer doesn't just say they started weeping, but he focuses first on the emotion that drives the action. Mm -hmm. A passionate longing for tears arose in them both, and they cried aloud piercingly and more convulsively than birds of prey. Ah. So there's your epic simile. Yeah. A bird ahead, you know, overhead, circling and screeching. That's what these two sounded like together. Yeah, more birds. <laughs> yeah, quite gripping. Yeah. Well, connecting them to the to the gods and to prophecy. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, so they have this this moment, but I what I also find really interesting is how quickly they get down to business mm-hmm. as well, right? And I, I I think that Homer reveals, at least I see a Telemachus that's been kind of plotting for some time now because mm. it is he's kind of he says you know what's going on who's there uh, what are we up against mm-hmm. and uh, he rattled, the montage scene begins right it, the A-team scene exactly right pull out the welding equipment and take the wheels off and turn so that forth. van into a tank once again exactly right? in, in about 10 minutes <laughs> exactly right but so he rattles off we got this many suitors from Ithaca this from this island this from that island and it's kind of roughly about a, uh, a hundred guys yeah I have, I have here 118 is, is that, okay that's by how many by my count okay yep. they have 52 from Dulichium plus 6 servants 26 from Sam 29 from Zacynthus, 12 are from Ithaca itself. Yeah, I think that includes, I think Antinous is from. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Plus you have Madon, the Herald, you got a minstrel, throw in a couple servants, yep. 118. Okay, so they're up, that's some, that's some nasty odds. It is. It's yep. a, what, 59 each they're yeah. going to have to dispatch? <laughs> that's right, exactly. So uh, less A-team and more like a like a kung fu movie. Definitely. Right. But I, I mean, that strikes me is that Telemachus, he's, he's, He's so exact. He's been counting. Mm, he knows. He knows exactly. It and, does and, reveal a lot. Right. And I also find this, and he's he's nervous. He tells his dad, listen, if we're going to do this, he more or less says, we need an equal army mm-hmm. like this, and we, we need allies. And they, of course, they end up doing get, get a small band of allies, but Odysseus says, no, the God's help is going to be enough. Don't worry about that part. Yeah. So yeah. he's religious after all? I suppose. Well, he's, he's um, conveniently religious. Right? Gr- he, growing in character? Odysseus? Um, this is an idea that we entertained in a previous right, episode. Right. The, the, our last Odyssey episode, we I think there was some clear evidence that he learned something along the way. I still think, like you were saying, you know, he prays to the gods when it's convenient for him. Uh, but maybe here he's saying, you know, you know, we, uh, Athena's kind of proved her her support, and we're gonna um, she's gonna support what's gonna happen next. Mm-hmm. Uh, allies or no allies. So Odysseus will travel with Eumaeus in the disguise of a beggar, mm-hmm. and uh, Telemachus is told he's supposed to endure the insults. This is as the plot unfolds. Yes, the insults against Odysseus from the suitors. Right. So when the, when the suitors start to throw insults at Odysseus, Telemachus, he has his own test of character here. He's got to hold his tongue. Yes. Right. Don't don't uh, lash out uh, too early. And then they will secretly disarm them with a plausible excuse of some kind. Right. So, on to book 17, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Have I already kind of uh, 
wandered into the beginnings of seventeen. You have. I mean, you, you've kind of, you've set up um, what they're what they're going to be dealing with there. Once um, again, the segue was so seamless that we I ourselves did, didn't I even didn't notice it. That's right. Notice it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Very, very very smooth. Yeah, but Telemachus gives some of his own advice here as well, right? He's uh, he's starting to act more like Odysseus's equal. Yeah. So he's if you remember Telemachus from the beginning of the epic, he's he's kind of wishy washy. Mm-hmm. He does. He's not stepping up. Um, the suitors are walking all over him. Uh, and then here, when he comes back home, he starts barking orders to Eurycleia and to mom. And he basically says, mom, go upstairs. You know, we've got stuff to take care of. And so, again, he's becoming authoritative. He's becoming more like his dad. Again, that He's starting to mansplain. He is start, yeah, with a lot of <laughs> mansplaining going on here. Yes. Um, I don't know why I laughed at that so much. But. <laughs> but I think one of the questions, of course, that lingers in the second half is, what kind of man is Telemachus going to become? Exactly. Is he going to come alongside his father in a worthy manner? So Jeff, as book 17 opens, Telemachus has his own homecoming at the palace. Yep. That is a kind of a dress rehearsal or an anticipation for the homecoming of Odysseus. Can you explain uh, that to us a little bit? In the way that Telemachus kind of mirrors Odysseus? Correct. Yeah. So um, I think that's a huge part of this uh, at the end of this epic is that Telemachus, I think with his journey to Pelos and Sparta, He's also had kind of his his own little you know, bout of wanderings. Mm-hmm. Um, like Agamemnon tells Odysseus, he says, listen, you know, I, you know Penelope's the best, but you might want to be careful with your wife. And when you come home, you know, um, go around the bend and, and come back slowly. Telemachus, too, has had to kind of have been forced to do that because of the suitors planning to, to, to kill him. So he has to be very careful about his own return. And so um, his homecoming then presages, mirrors, parallels, choose your metaphor, um, what's what Odysseus is trying to accomplish as well. And it's another way of Homer of bringing father and son uh, together. Yes, uniting them in purpose and experience. Yeah. So he greets his mother when he gets there, and Telemachus yep. does. He greets all those who are loyal, tells them the news from Menelaus, and then Theoclymenus speaks out again. Now this guy. I, I, I'm, You're tired of him. I'm tired of him, right. So he pipes up again with his, uh, yeah, he's coming home. Odysseus is, is coming home. He'll be here any day. And not only that, he says, this is the interesting part, which might make you reconsider a little bit. <laughs> All right. He says, Odysseus is already in Ithaca. Right. But get, yeah. Aslan is on the move, right, from the... Narnia books. He's such a, this guy is such a people pleaser. Okay. Right? So I, don't, I don't know. So I, I don't know what's going to bring me around on Theoclimatus. But again, it's part of these omens, prophecies uh, piling up. The gods are making themselves known. Yeah. And they bump next into a man named Melanthius. Yes. Perhaps, in my opinion, the most vile character uh, yes. In the in the epic. Well, what do you expect from a goat herd? Well, well I mean, so swine herd good. Swine herd good. Goat herd, goat herd bad. Well, goat herd suspect. Suspect. We learn later the cow We're herd. Back to Cyclops talk. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. We, we learn later that cow herd also good. Cow herd also good. Right. Reliable. Philoetius. Yes, Philoetius, which means something like friendly guy, full of friendliness. Yeah. Melanthius but, means um, person of unsure motives. Ah, okay. It means something like suspect, darkened, or obscure. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, Some of the more, I guess, pejorative meanings would be, I don't know, something like swarthy is is one of the ways that Malanthos is translated. Mm. But I don't really think there's any kind of a racial overtone of of any sort. I don't think so either. Uh, Based on my reading, I just think it has more to do with a person whose motives are obscured. Right. His name uh, tells us that he's a villain. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's, he's horrible. 
And as we'll see, he gets uh, a fairly horrible comeuppance, uh, as we'll see in a future episode. Well, when they f- first bump into each other, he abuses Odysseus violently, who, yeah. whom you must remember is disguised as a poor old beggar. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, he violently kicks him in the thigh. I think we do see some uh, growth from Odysseus here, restraint, right? Um, enduring these insults. And later, later on, not, not only are they throwing insults at him, but they're throwing foreign objects at him. Yeah, there's a stool at one point. Yeah, they and get, other things hurled. Right, and he's got to he's got to keep it he's got to keep it together, and he does. Where this is not the the fist shaking, uh, insulting the Cyclops Odysseus. Maybe he's he's learned some patience here. I also like to refer to this as something like Thersites' revenge. Ah, you yeah. Remember the character Thersites from, from the Iliad, Iliad yes. Book Two. Thersites is the, you know, physically deficient individual that dares to challenge Odysseus and the other heroes. And how does Odysseus respond there? He picks up a cudgel and beats and humiliates the guy. Right. So uh, Thersites' revenge. This is the revenge of Thersites. I love that. It is now someone who is very low on the social uh, ladder compared to Odysseus gets to take something out on Odysseus disguised as a beggar. So he can see maybe, so this is what it's like to be on the receiving end of uh, being at the bottom of the social scale. Yes, right. Exactly right. So Odysseus uh, goes in, um, now he's amongst the suitors, and he's playing the role of the beggar. He's, again, he's testing, mm-hmm. and he's going from suitor to suitor and saying, you know, hey, listen, you know, this Elzania works, give me something. And and this is, of course, another temporary reversal, isn't it? it, it yeah. Uh, it occurs to me when he's disguised as a beggar, this is a temporary reversal before the recognition and then he's king. Yeah, exactly right. So he's asking for Zania just to continue with what you were saying. Right. And Lombardo translates, he says, uh, give me something, friend. You don't look like you are the poorest man here. Far from it, but the most well off. You look like a king. Uh, he's speaking to Antinous here. So you should give me more than the others. Uh, but of course, they want nothing to do with us. And what does Antinous' name mean? Uh, the, 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 the idiot. Yeah, dolt. Dolt. No mind. No mind, yep. exactly. Mindless. Right. right. So there's more, there's more insults. Um, there's more kickings. Uh, finally, Antinous gets so fed up, he takes a footstool, chucks it at him, bounces off Odysseus's shoulder blade. It's like a bar brawl a little bit. It right? is, right. Pick this thing up, take, tear the leg off, whip it at him, bounces off his shoulder blade. Right. Isn't that kind of telling? Shouldn't they have known? For someone whose name means dolt, I guess maybe not. You're not going to expect a lot. Right. So, But yeah, it's, it's this old man who's, uh, who these things bounce off him like he's made of marble, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So he's still the same tough, ripped Odysseus underneath all that, um, but the, the suitors are too blind to see. Yeah, too stupid. Yep. And then an un, unnamed suitor speaks up. Yes. And defends the poor beggar. That was foul, Antinous, he says, hitting a poor beggar. You're done for if he turns out to be a god. See, more irony. Yeah. Come down from heaven the way they do, disguised as strangers from abroad or whatever, going around to different cities and seeing who's lawless and who lives by the rules. Interesting that the unnamed suitor has this insight. Right. And there's, there's more of this to come. I find this really interesting that, you know, a kind of a conventional reading of or understanding of the Odyssey is suitors bad, Odysseus good. You're going to uh, complexify and complicate yes, things again, exactly. aren't you? I'm going to see things that probably are not there. You're going to make it problematic. That's, that's my job. All right. Right. But I think there are some moments where maybe not sympathy isn't the right word, but Homer reminds us that not all the suitors are the same. Uh, and uh, it's interesting this guy is not named, but he, it's, he speaks up against Antinous and says, you know, are you crazy? I mean, this guy knows his mythology. That could be a god in disguise. Mm. And, but he's also kind of recognizing that that's not how you treat people like this. And so it's more complicated than just a hero comes in to slay the villain. 
Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. How does Penelope respond here as we wind down? Well, I think Homer suggests she's intrigued by the beggar. Uh, it's either that or against she's just, you know, super Zania woman and she's going to treat the beggar well, wants to see him alone, wants to question him, wants to talk to him. To but, see if she knows, if he knows anything about Odysseus. Right, right. Um, but I think that there's also one of these really interesting mysteries uh, here in, in, the, in the coming books is when does Penelope know? You know, when does she figure it out? It becomes this kind of, this kind of battle of wits between husband and wife, right? Um, but she wants to... Uh, just, just like you and Mrs. Winkle when you... Uh, when you sidle up to the ratio six, right? It's exactly, exactly. It's a right. battle of wits. It is a battle of wits, right? It gets ugly every morning. Yeah, right? the bloom, the brew, the ready. <laughs> That's right. Who's going to be there first? That's right. Who could, yeah, who's going to be there first? Who gets to push the button? Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. But she wants to see the beggar, especially after Telemachus sneezes. And oh, that's a big one. It's a big, it's a big one. And so she immediately, again, she's Theoclimenusing here. She immediately says, ah, did you hear that sneeze? She knows immediately Odysseus is coming home. And the suitors are doomed. Again, she, she has this, some kind of divine insight. Well, the gods have given her knowledge. Is that so implausible? No, it's not. It's not implausible. I just find it so interesting. But I think it's also, it's a, it's a knowledge that is given to women. Mm. You know, Telemachus doesn't interpret his own sneeze. No. And suitors this, don't see it. Right? And in this uh, instance, apart from the flight of birds. A very new, is a new omen. That's yeah. right. The presence of the sneeze, all the suitors will be slaughtered and soon. Yes. That's really quite remarkable. Yep. But Odysseus is not ready. He's no. not ready to see her. He declines this invitation. It comes, it will see coming soon enough, but he has more recon. He has more plotting he needs to do. And he has to test a great number of individuals first to make sure that there is a sufficient number in the palace loyal to him for this plot to succeed. Exactly right. right? But that is all on tap for a future episode. So, Jeff, we got to get out of here today. How come, exactly? We do. Well, uh, we have somebody that needs the room again, right? Rented the vomitorium. Who is that? It's the, uh, it's the generic food naming committee. Oh, is that's that right? right. That's yeah. right. They're responsible for such great generic food names as Thick Mints. You know Thick Mints? <laughs> yeah, I got a roll in my pocket right now. Yeah, and then the, uh, the off-brand Oreo known as Cream Betweens. <laughs> One of my favorite, the wonderful uh, chocolate and cookie candy bar known as Catcot. Catcot, yeah. That's yeah, right. Share with your friends. And then maybe the best one, Prongles. <laughs> they come in original and barbecue Prongles. In fact, there's a pig on the label, which dovetails, the pig dovetails nicely with this week's episode, right. wouldn't you say? Ties it all together, right? Absolutely. So they, they're coming in, they're having their big round table discussion. Yeah, to decide what kinds of, uh, you know, things they want to name their generic food brands. Instead of Twix, there's Jive. Yeah. Of course, if you eat all of this food, you know, when you are a cetacean, right? Yeah. You're going to need some kind of an app to help you lose weight. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, no. And what would that app be? It'd be Bloober. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As always, we've got people to thank. Uh, our musicians, Ken Tamplin, Scott Vinzen, for their awesome music. Uh, thanks, as always, to our engineer, Mishka. Amazing work she does. Yes. Bringing this audio into shape. Making us sound much, much better than we Absolutely. actually are. What's this about this Moss Method? You want to study some Greek, go to mossmethods.com. Check out my program. It's expert, self-paced, accessible. Take you from... Neophyte. To erudite. Yes. Mossmethod.com. Jeff, what's on tap for next week? Next week, we continue our look at the Odyssey. We're going to tackle books 18, 19, and 20. This has been a long Odyssey, it, hasn't it? It has been a long Odyssey, but it's great. I'm, now, I'm truthfully very excited about these next books. So leave us a review if you don't mind at Apple iTunes or Spotify and uh, pick up a t-shirt if you'd like. Sport your ad nauseum gear. It's kind of like a little tip underneath the wine glass. Indeed. And uh, Dave, I think you got our gustatory parting shot today, right? Yes, I do. This is from the wonderful tenor now deceased, Mr. Luciano Pavarotti, who says one of the very best things about 
life is the way we must regularly stop whatever it is we are doing and devote our attention to eating. I agree with that. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.